0: From Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News, this is an American Radio Works special report, Justice on Trial. I'm Deborah Amos. This summer, an international court assumes power at The Hague a court to prosecute war criminals. It's not the first time nations have come together to enforce international laws of war.
1: During the prosecution of the terrorists of the Nazi regime who ravaged Europe and committed unbelievable crimes against humanity.
0: From the trials of Nazi war criminals to the prosecution of mass killers in the former Yugoslavia, how effective is the machinery of international justice?
1: It's not justice, but a balance of fear.
0: In the coming hour, a close look at war crimes courts past and present. Justice on Trial, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. First, this update. This is an American Radio Works special report, Justice on Trial. I'm Deborah Amos. Some 60 years ago, the U.S. and its European allies created a new kind of court.
1: This in Nuremberg, Germany, is carefully guarded during the prosecution of the terrorists of the Nazi regime who ravaged Europe and committed unbelievable crimes against humanity.
0: On November 20, 1945, one of history's great courtroom dramas opened in Nuremberg, Germany. 21 of Adolf Hitler's top lieutenants, including Hermann Goering. Wilhelm Keitel and Rudolf Hess stood accused by a world court of masterminding horrific crimes.
1: Prosecutor Robert Jackson of the United States opens the trial with a strong indictment of the defendants. The wrongs which we
2: seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant and so devastating That civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated.
0: After a year of trials, all but two of the Nazi defendants were found guilty. Eleven were executed. Nuremberg was hailed as a legal triumph. In the past, the victor usually executed enemy leaders without holding a legitimate trial. Nuremberg was different. Individuals were held accountable by an international authority for atrocities committed in the name of a state. These
1: pictures reveal the arrogance with which the German warlords meet the charges of criminal injustice to civilized people.
0: Allied prosecutors hoped Nuremberg would hold a mirror up to the German nation and compel ordinary Germans to recognize Nazi crimes. Soon after the first trial closed, the Allies launched a second round of prosecutions. This time, broad sectors of German society stood accused, not just the Nazi leadership. These subsequent Nuremberg trials are largely forgotten today, but are crucial to how nations determine criminal guilt for mass violence. With a new International Criminal Court taking jurisdiction this summer, the lessons of Nuremberg the successes and the failures are especially timely. American Radio Works correspondent Stephen Smith reports.
3: Outside Nuremberg's Palace of Justice, there is no sign, no plaque, no hint of the historic experiment that took place inside.
4: Military Tribunal 2 is now in session. God save the United States of America and this honorable tribunal.
3: I
2: was the chief prosecutor against the SS extermination troops that had murdered over a million people
3: in cold blood. In 1948, Ben Ferenz was a young American lawyer appointed to prosecute some of the most shocking cases at Nuremberg. This was the second round of trials, and his targets were members of the notorious German death squads called the Einsatzgruppen, rough translation, the operations group. These were not top Nazi leaders, but elite military squads that conducted widespread killing. Here's what Ferenz told the court. The slaughter committed by these defendants
2: was dictated not by military necessity, but by that
3: supreme perversion of thought, the Nazi theory of the master race. Ferenc told the court that as German troops invaded the Soviet Union, the Nazis deployed their death squads to round up and kill Jews, gypsies, and Communist Party officials. In revisiting the Nuremberg courtrooms a few years ago, Ferenz explained how the Einsatzgruppen's appallingly methodical nature helped his case against them.
2: Every day they reported to Berlin which unit had entered which town under the command of which officer, where they were, how long they stayed there, and how many people they had murdered in cold blood during that period of time. By taking an editing machine and adding up The numbers have reported, I reached a total of over a million people had been slaughtered that way by these special units.
3: The records themselves were so damning that Ferenz called no witnesses. In all, 24 of the Einsatzgruppen's defendants were found guilty. 13 got a death sentence, the others long prison terms. While death camp officers and execution squads were obvious candidates for the tribunal, American prosecutors, led by Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, had a much larger, more sweeping view of justice in mind. A new criminal charge was used, waging aggressive war.
2: Any resort to war, any kind of war, is a resort to means that are inherently criminal as means. War inevitably is a course of killings, Assaults, deprivations of liberty, and destruction of property.
3: This was a first prosecuting the inner workings of a country's war machine. And it was felt that we had to bring in the
2: industrialists who built the concentration camps in order to have cheap labor for their war machine, the the generals who had the power to stop Hitler and chose not to, the doctors who conducted medical experiments, for example were to be portrayed so that the world could see precisely how it was that a civilized country like Germany could resort to such barbarism. That was the purpose of these subsequent trials.
3: Another prosecutor at Nuremberg was William Kaming.
4: There was also a hope that the trials and the revelation of all of the acts would re-educate the German people who had lived under the yoke of Nazism since the early 30s.
3: The Allies charged nearly 200 defendants with war crimes, among them Germany's most prominent businessmen and professionals. Prosecutor Telford Taylor, who took over when Robert Jackson returned to the Supreme Court, accused German industrialists of fabricating the turbines of war and the tools of Holocaust in their factories.
4: One does not build a stupendous war machine in a fit of passion, nor an Auschwitz factory during a passing spasm of brutality. There will be no mistaking the ruthless purposefulness with which the defendants embarked upon their course of conduct. That purpose was to turn the German nation into a military machine and build it into an engine of destruction. Military tribunal number six will come to order. Defendant Karl Kroesch, how do you plead to this indictment? Guilty or not guilty? Nicht no. schuldig
3: not guilty. Karl Krausch was the head of the IG Farben Company, a huge chemical firm that produced Zyklon B, the poison gas used to kill millions of Jews at Auschwitz and other Nazi death camps. Farben also ran a synthetic rubber factory at Auschwitz with inmate labor. Karl Krausch and other Farben executives were tried using the company's own documents, which revealed Farben's deep involvement in the Nazi war effort. Historian Jonathan Bush says the Farben employees had an unwavering explanation for the work they did and the papers they signed. They use an old common law defense of duress. We were made to do it. We'd be shot if we didn't. You're misreading all the evidence against us. The phrase was howling with the wolves. When you when you live in the forest, you have to howl with the wolves to survive. So in a way, they could do jujitsu with all the evidence. Yep, he signed that. Yes, he said that. But you're reading it as if he meant it. He didn't mean it for a minute. He had to say that to survive. The excuse did not work for Karl Krausch. He was found guilty and sentenced to prison. But of the 24 Farben employees on trial, 10 were acquitted. The judges accepted the defense by some Farben executives who claimed they acted under duress, setting a precedent that those who make the policy and give the orders to commit war crimes are more responsible than those who obey the commands. Jonathan Bush says the prosecution of soldiers and industrialists was controversial in Germany and the United States. The analogy to many Western observers was Henry Ford. These industrialists, they're they're successful businessmen. They're doing what their country's laws allow them to do. They're operating within the law for their country in time of war. While the trials were meant to provoke soul-searching among the Germans, Allied prosecutors also knew their work would shape the future of international justice. That preoccupied Ben Ferencz, who prosecuted the Nazi death squad members.
2: The question I had in my own mind was, what do I ask for? Do I ask the tribunal to hang them all, chop them up into a million pieces or something like that? I felt, no, that wouldn't really serve a significant purpose because you never could balance their 22 lives against the million who had been slaughtered. And if I could develop a rule of law which would protect humankind in future... That would be significant.
3: Nuremberg would establish a body of new human rights law, but before the prosecutions were even complete, the court's effectiveness began to erode in a new tide of international politics.
4: Food to break Russia's blockade of Berlin. In the greatest peacetime aerial feat ever... As
3: the World War gave way to the Cold War, Soviet troops blockaded Berlin, which sat deep in the East German territory they controlled. America started to see West Germany as a potentially powerful ally against the Soviet Union. Prosecutor William Kaming.
4: We had visits from congressmen and senators who favored the uh, rearmament of Germany and who said we have to get rid of the trials because they're an obstacle
3: An obstacle because German political and military leaders wanted the Nuremberg trials shut down and the prisoners released before agreeing to side with the U.S. That put tremendous pressure on the tribunal from America itself.
4: They accused some of the prosecutors of being communists. Jewish left wing communists.
3: Belle Zeck and her husband Bill served as prosecution lawyers at Nuremberg. The Zeks remember several U.S. congressmen, including a young Wisconsin senator named Joseph McCarthy, who openly defended the German industrialists and attacked the American tribunal.
1: And
4: there was a congressman, Dondero, from Glens Falls. He said that he accused Bell of being a
2: communist. Yeah and well-known communists.
3: Amidst the criticism and red-baiting, the Nuremberg trials wrapped up business in 1949 with some 142 convictions. Twenty-four Germans were sentenced to death. Many others got prison terms. But they would not stay behind bars long. To appease West Germany, American diplomats in command of the U.S. occupation zone formed a review board to consider clemencies. Prosecutor William Kaming.
4: Between 19... 1949 and 1958, all of the prisoners uh, had sentences reduced and then released, including, surprisingly enough, four of the leaders of Einsatz Group and death squads. It was a political measure. No members of the prosecution staff and none of the judges at Nuremberg were even consulted.
3: Years later, a handful of the convicted war criminals would be tried again in German courts. The German government and German industry would also pay billions of dollars in compensation to victims of Nazi crimes. Human rights activists say the legal principles established at Nuremberg, such as the crime of committing aggressive warfare, were far more important than who got out of jail when. And, they say, the legacy of Nuremberg is just beginning to unfold. Earlier this year, the modern descendant of Nuremberg was announced. In a ceremony at United Nations Headquarters in New York, 66 countries agreed to create a permanent International Criminal Court. The Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court
5: will enter into force on the first day of July 2002.
3: Nuremberg Prosecutor Ben Ferencz was on hand at the U.N. ceremony. He says he always believed that the trials 60 years ago would lead to a permanent war crimes tribunal.
2: We were building on the Nuremberg Foundation to condemn aggression as the most serious war crime in the world because during time of war, all of the other war crimes are committed to condemn genocide, to condemn crimes against humanity. These were the great precedents being established at Nuremberg and then affirmed unanimously by the United Nations. Uh, And then, of course, the world went back to killing as usual.
3: One nation was conspicuously absent from the U.N. ceremony this year, the United States. The country that played such a central role in the Nuremberg trials opposes the new international criminal court. The Bush administration says that no American soldier should ever face trial in anything but a U.S. court. This is Stephen Smith.
0: Coming up, one small community's ordeal with international justice.
6: These crimes, which are hugely notorious, everybody knew about them. Everybody knows who did it. Everybody knows where the evidence is. And yet, nobody came forward to assist us.
0: I'm Deborah Amos. You're listening to Justice on Trial a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is Justice on Trial, a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. The close of the Cold War saw a wave of new conflicts around the globe. These were not the battles of nation-states like in the First and Second World Wars, but civil conflicts and violence among ethnic groups. In Europe, the collapse of Yugoslavia quickly descended into slaughter. Civilian massacres, concentration camps, and the newly termed ethnic cleansing all evoked the Nazi era. The United Nations looked to the historic trials at Nuremberg for a solution. In 1993, the U.N. created a tribunal to prosecute genocide and other crimes against humanity in the Balkans. This new court was based in The Hague, far from the killing fields in the former Yugoslavia. At this distance, officials hoped the court would be seen as fair, even to those being prosecuted, and that justice would overcome cycles of violence in which neighbor killed neighbor. Here's American Radio Works correspondent Michael Montgomery.
7: Please be seated.
6: Mr. Akhmic, I only have two or three questions now, and they're also difficult no.
8: questions. The scene, a somber courtroom at the United Nations War Crimes Tribunal at The Hague. Three men face each other. The witness, Saki Bakmich is a small, gray-haired man. The accused are two neatly dressed men in their 30s. Between them is American prosecutor Albert Moskowitz.
6: Could you look around the room and see if you can identify Zoran Kupreskic.
8: Da. Uh,
5: Zoran Kupreskic.
6: Zoran
8: May the record reflect he's identified Zoran Kupreskic. Prosecutor Moskowitz asks his questions in English. The men listen on headphones to a translator. Were these the two
6: men who were in your house on April 16, 1993, while your family was killed before your eyes?
8: Da. The elderly witness, Sakib Akhmich stands and points to the accused men 25 feet across the courtroom. His hand quivers.
6: It was a very emotional and difficult moment uh, for Sakib to turn and look at, at the murders of his son, at the murders of his uh, grandkid, and Seho, I think, was in a crib and was shot to death, and look them in the eye and say that you're the people who did this.
8: Many witnesses testify in secret to protect their safety when they return home but Sakib chose to speak in open session. Who should I fear to tell
1: the truth? I'm not afraid of anyone anymore, and I shall never be afraid of anyone
8: anymore. All those who did that,
3: let them fear me.
8: The International Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia was created to make moments like this possible. The court is meant to be a place where victims of a war can seek justice when courts in their own country fail to prosecute war crimes. Created in 1993, the Hague Tribunal for Yugoslavia was the first international war crimes court since World War II, when Nazi and Japanese leaders were tried at Nuremberg and Tokyo. But unlike those courts, the Hague Tribunal was established in the midst of war. The UN hoped that punishing individuals for war crimes would deter more atrocities in Yugoslavia. Once the fighting was over, the court was meant to promote reconciliation and the rule of law. Good evening. British U.N. soldiers have stumbled on a terrible example of the cruelty of the civil war in Bosnia. They found a Muslim village that had been totally destroyed, apparently by Croats. Nothing had been left alive. One of the first and most notorious cases for the tribunal was the massacre that Saki Bakmich witnessed in 1993. In one house, they found an entire family who had been either shot or burnt alive. Martin Bell was there and you're Early on a spring morning, heavily armed men in camouflage attacked Akmici, a tiny village in the rolling farmland of central Bosnia, where Muslims and Croats lived. The men did not attack the whole village, only homes of Muslims. Within hours, some 100 civilians were slaughtered, men, women, children, and the elderly. It's hard to imagine, in our continent and in our time, what kind of people could do this. United Nations peacekeeping troops discovered burnt-out homes and carbonized bodies inside, some of them children. In a house just behind the village mosque were the remains of five members of Sakib Akhmich's family, including his three-month-old grandson. After the attack, Sakib Akhmich moved to a nearby town, but he visited the massacre site recently and stood before a pile of concrete rubble and faded red-roof tiles. This had been his home.
1: The soldiers came in They were in uniform and had their faces painted And in a few seconds shot them all Then they poured gasoline and set
8: fire to the houses Sakib says that to his horror He recognized two of the gunmen They were the Kupreskic brothers Ethnic Croats who lived next door
1: They wore black uniforms Their faces were painted but I recognized them They grew up here.
8: Sakiv fainted and awoke later amidst the flames. He was wounded and severely burned. He managed to escape through a window. The attack on Akhmici attracted worldwide attention, in part because television crews made it into the village under protection of British UN troops. The newly formed Hague Tribunal dispatched investigators to central Bosnia, Prosecutors later indicted 15 Bosnian Croats for killings and deportations in Akhmici and other towns. American prosecutor Mark Harmon opened the first trial in 1997.
6: Your Honor, the the case over which you and Judge Riyadh and Judge Shabuddin will preside is a case about how Bosnian Croat military forces ethnically cleansed parts of central Bosnia by systematically attacking Muslim civilians and their homes and destroying their property, and by employing
8: methods that no responsible military commander would condone. There were two types of defendants and two types of trials. The higher-ups, who either ordered the attacks or should have punished the men responsible, and the ground-level gunmen who did the killing. Prosecutor Albert Moskowitz had the job of going after some of the low-level perpetrators at Akhmici, Saqib's next-door neighbors.
6: Mr. Akhmici, could you please look at the Exhibit 158, can identify that, please. This was an eyewitness case, and we had to establish that uh, Sakib and the other witnesses could, in fact, identify in court the people that they're were accusing were, you know,
8: in their homes five years earlier, shooting and killing everybody. But the men on trial, brothers Zoran and Mirjan Kupreskic, maintained their innocence.
1: When he pointed
8: to us and said, those are the killers of my children, it's like my legs were cut from under me. I couldn't believe it. Mirjan says they were not in the village during the attack and that their Muslim neighbor, Saqib, was desperate to blame anyone for the killings. I was very good friends with his son, Nasser.
1: And when Nasser's son was born, he came over to our place with drinks to honor his new child. Can you imagine that three months later they're dead and I'm accused of
8: their murder? The defense argued Sakib's testimony was unreliable because he did not name the brothers when investigators first spoke to him. Akhmich claimed he was too frightened. The defense also pointed out that the bullet casings found at the scene did not match the kind of weapon Sakib described the Kupreshkic brothers carrying. Prosecutor Albert Moskowitz grew worried. What we didn't have and what we desperately needed were folks from the other side. The eyewitnesses were all Muslims. The
6: Croats refused to talk. One of the great frustrations in doing a case like this in the tribunal was that the factions are so polarized that it was virtually impossible to to get a a, a person from the Croat community
8: to come in and say yeah here's what happened. The trial of the Kupreskic brothers would grind on for nearly two years. The parallel cases against senior Bosnian Croat officials responsible for the region around Ahmici were also unfolding. In going after these so-called big fish, prosecutors used a much different standard of evidence.
7: When you're dealing especially with military commanders and leaders, it's not particular acts that they've been involved in, uh, but it's a criminal design or plan in this case ethnic cleansing of, you know, the entire
8: region. Payim Akhavan arrived in Akhmachie days after the massacre to investigate for the UN. In looking for the big fish who ordered the attack, Akhavan discovered evidence to support a legal principle developed at Nuremberg, command responsibility.
7: If you are a commander in effective control and your subordinates over several weeks or several months are committing these massive military operations involving atrocities, it is inconceivable that unless you are purely uh, 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 symbolic commander that you had
8: not uh, ordered or instigated these crimes. Villagers told Akavan that the attacking force of about 100 soldiers wore the insignia of the HVO, the Bosnian Croat Army. So he paid a visit to the regional HVO colonel, a man named Tihomir Blakšić.
7: And I repeatedly asked him, are you the commander of HVO forces in the region? To which she answered, yes. Uh, Are you in control of this area? To which she answered, yes. And I said, well, how could uh, a company size group of soldiers, uh, 100 to 150 soldiers, engage in a several-hour-long assault on a village involving several hundred casualties, involving the use of mortar and machine guns and so on and so
8: forth, Uh, How could you not know about it? Blakšić's headquarters was just two miles from Akmachi, but the commander claimed he had no idea who carried out the attack. With no physical evidence to tie Blakšić to the massacre, prosecutors used the rule of command responsibility – Investigator Paya Makavan's interview turned out to be important evidence for the prosecution.
7: I did mention that they would be held responsible if they did not investigate these atrocities and bring those who
8: are responsible to justice. So while Akavan's interview did not prove that Blockshich ordered the attack, it established that the Colonel knew about the atrocity shortly afterward and had time to follow up. Inadvertently we had stumbled upon a very convenient
7: means uh, essentially of putting commanders on notice and avoiding any pretext on their part that they were somehow unaware of what their subordinates were doing.
5: Indisputably, what happened on the 16th of April 93 in Ahmici has gone down in history as comprising one of the most vicious illustrations of man's inhumanity to man.
8: In early 2000, the court began issuing judgments. The tribunal convicted Tihimir Blakšić of murder, forced deportation, and other crimes against humanity because he knew about the crimes but ignored his obligation to investigate. The court sentenced Blakšić to 45 years in prison. As for the Kupreskic brothers, the tribunal ruled there was not enough evidence for a murder conviction, but it did sentence them to 10 years in prison for essentially aiding and abetting the attack. Late last year, an appeals chamber threw out the conviction, in part due to lack of credible testimony. The brothers were released. Prosecutor Moskowitz.
6: It was very depressing. What can I say? I mean, I spent so much time, we spent so much time uh, bringing witnesses in and and persuading them to come and testify, and only uh, to have the convictions reversed. I I just felt very badly for the the community and for the victims that um, had come forward.
8: This spring, a bitterly divided community commemorated April 16th, the day of the Akhmici massacre. Thousands of Muslims climbed up a grassy knoll to the cemetery where the victims were buried nine years ago. There, they listened to a man reading the names of Akhmici's dead.
9: Omera 66 years Hajra Besimova.
3: On the
8: same day, and just across the main road from Akmici, local Croats staged their own commemoration at the foot of a huge neon cross. They prayed not for the Muslims killed at Akmici, but for Croats killed in the Civil War. It was a provocative act, and meant to be. Deepening ethnic tension is the exact opposite outcome intended by the War Crimes Tribunal. Its central mission is to focus blame on individuals most responsible, not along ethnic or national lines. To many in the village, the trials were a failure. Sakib Akhmic says the jailing of commanders gave little comfort. He wanted the actual killers sent to jail. The outcome of the trials hardened Sakib's hatred of Croats.
1: In my opinion, they are all guilty because not one Croat helped to protect Muslims here. Had they helped to save even one Muslim life, I would say, okay,
4: here is an
8: ounce of humanity. Sakib's daughter, Shukrita, is outraged The tribunal released the Kupreskic brothers without telling survivors why.
2: As if
5: dogs were killed, not people. I'm speechless as why no one had a sense to come and explain why they were released. Why? In what way? How is it that war criminals
8: can be released? A third Muslim from Akhmici, a cafe owner named Mehmed, says the tribunal failed everyone, Muslims and Croats.
1: Four years after our return here, we still don't know the truth. My relative thinks his neighbor killed his father. This neighbor, knowing that he is suspected, is afraid and doesn't sleep at night. That's what we have here. It's
8: not justice, but a balance of fear. Zoran and Mirjan Kupreskic, the former defendants, are unemployed and living off charity with their families in rented apartments two miles from Akmici. They have publicly discouraged Croats from seeking revenge on Muslims, But the brothers want another kind of retribution. They're suing the tribunal for wrongful imprisonment. Zoran says the Hague Tribunal produced nothing but injustice for Croats. The problem is that because
7: the
1: court prosecuted innocent people like us and others, it has completely lost the confidence of Croats. Everyone knows we were prosecuted as Croats, not as criminals. In the end, they chose the people they could get, not those who were guilty.
8: There are no obvious signs of hostility in Akmici, as Croats and Muslims continue to rebuild. But there's little effort at reconciliation either. It's clear from our from our studies throughout the former Yugoslavia that war crimes trials, at least in the short run, tend to further divide communities. Eric Stover directs the Human Rights Center at University of California at Berkeley. Based on nearly 100 interviews with war crimes witnesses from throughout former Yugoslavia, Stover found that Akhmici is not an isolated case. The fact that there were so many People who planned and carried out
4: the war crimes in the former Yugoslavia means that in villages today, in towns today, there are still war criminals walking around, and everyone knows who they are. And so you set up a dynamic in these villages where there won't be, in my
8: view, any reconciliation until there are further trials that deal with the smaller fish. The man who prosecuted the Kupreskic brothers, Albert Moskowitz, says it would be impossible for any court to heal all the wounds of war. But he says the Hague Tribunal was successful in Akmichi because it jailed the leaders. Any reasonable person looking from
6: afar, you know, would say this is a good measure of justice as to what happened in the, in those villages, including Akmichi. But if you're a villager in Akmichi trying to rebuild your life and all you know is that your your husband and your brother and your your mother had been murdered by people who are still walking around uh, claiming that this was a defensive operation, uh,
8: you know, that's cold comfort. There will be no more Akmichi style prosecutions at the U.N. Tribunal. Instead, future cases will almost always focus solely on high-level officials. The Tribunal says it must concentrate on getting the leaders of the wars in former Yugoslavia if it is to complete work on schedule within seven years tribunal officials would like to hand off cases against lower-level war criminals to Bosnia's Supreme Court, but they say it may take years before that court reaches international standards for fairness and independence. Some say the kind of justice offered in The Hague will be largely symbolic, punishing the few for the crimes of the many. In domestic society, then, we think... Any person who commits a crime deserves to be punished. Gary Bass is an expert on international justice at Princeton University. When you're dealing with war crimes, you're never going to be able to have that kind of perfect accountability. So you're
7: left with this kind of symbolic nature. I still think it's important, but I don't think we should kid ourselves that you can... You know, that you can say, oh, look, we've
8: set up a war crimes tribunal in The Hague. We've set up a war crimes tribunal in Arusha. You know, we've dealt with it. We've solved it. The two Bosnian Croat leaders who were convicted for the massacre at Akmici are still in jail at The Hague. But they are not yet serving the lengthy sentences they were given. Both men are appealing the verdict. This is Michael Montgomery.
0: Coming up, in the wake of the 1994 genocide, the African nation of Rwanda looks to its traditional culture to punish the makers of genocide.
9: When I come here, all these people are my my friends, my relatives.
0: Major funding for American radio works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for justice on trial was provided by the Open Society Institute, the Sandler Family Supporting Foundation, and the United States Institute for Peace. For more information on international justice, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You're listening to Justice on Trial, a special report from American Radio Works, the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. I'm Deborah Amos. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is Justice on Trial, a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. On April 6th, 1994, the tiny Central African nation of Rwanda erupted in genocide. In just 100 days, nearly a million people were killed. Most belonged to the Tutsi minority and were killed by members of the majority group, the Hutus. One thing that marked the Rwandan genocide, the sheer number of those who took part in the killing. It is estimated that hundreds of thousands of Rwandans took part in the carnage, or helped the killers by building roadblocks, hunting down those in hiding, or providing kerosene to burn buildings full of people. Eight years later, a handful of ringleaders has been tried by an international tribunal in Tanzania. But in Rwanda, more than 115,000 men and women are still in prison awaiting trial. To speed the pace of justice, Rwanda is beginning an experiment in justice based on tradition, not on western courtrooms. In the coming months, more than 10,000 open-air people's courts, called kachachas, will begin hearing cases. Here's correspondent Deborah George. One of the most infamous
10: massacre sites in Rwanda is on the outskirts of the capital, Kigali. It's a field covered with white crosses.
9: These are very few. The whole whole country is, is full of these crosses.
10: Karasira Venuste has told his story many times, how in the first days of the genocide, several thousand people went to a nearby school where Belgian peacekeepers were stationed. But the U.N. ordered the troops to the airport to help evacuate European civilians.
9: At around 3 p.m., they left, they went to the airport, and we cried, asking them, why are you leaving us, why are you leaving us? They told us, there will be some gendarmes who will be coming to protect you. They just took
5: off.
10: Less than two hours later, Hutu militia entered the school grounds. They marched the refugees along a dirt road lined with purple morning glories and yellow daisies to this spot, an open clearing. The killing began. It
9: started around 5.30. It was around 6.30. They stopped, but uh, very few survivors.
10: Venuste lost his right arm to a machete blow, but saved himself by lying under a pile of corpses. His wife and son also survived. His daughter is buried here among the wooden crosses. Venuste grew up with the militia leader who ordered the attack. The man was tried for war crimes at the International Tribunal in Tanzania. He's serving a life sentence. Venuste shrugs when asked if justice was done.
9: I wish he could come back here. He sees all these crosses. He sees all the list of people who died because of him. Maybe he could understand how life is dear to each and everybody.
10: Venuste says he curses the International Tribunal when he sees pictures of the prisoners there, leaders of the genocide. They're well-fed, testifying in suits and ties, and far away from the survivors of the tragedy they instigated. In Rwanda, the foot soldiers of the genocide are also in prison. The prison in Kabuye is separated from the town just by mud-brick walls and a wire fence. It would be easy to walk away from here, but it almost never happens. Rwanda is a small, crowded country. There is no place to hide. So the thousands of prisoners spend their days like any other inhabitants of a small village, tending vegetable patches or working at a crude forge. There's even a guitar shop where a young man shows off the instruments he makes with strips of wood. His song is a lament, and a prayer for forgiveness. Nearby, 58-year-old Savela Mukavokas sits on the ground cradling her grandchild in her lap. The child was born here in the prison to her daughter. Savela says she and her daughter both were unjustly accused of murder.
1: My husband was in prison and when I went to see him, the soldiers arrested me too. They asked me whether I knew a certain man And when I said, yes, because we are neighbors, they said I killed him. They accused my daughter of being on a roadblock to catch tutsis.
10: Until recently, Savela and her family had little hope of getting out of here. During the genocide, thousands of judges and lawyers were killed, and now the justice system is overwhelmed. 5,000 people have been tried since 1997, but at that rate, it might be a century before all the prisoners have their day in court. So Rwanda has reached back into the past for an answer. Tarsis Karugarama is vice president of Rwanda's Supreme Court. He says the solution lies in Rwanda's traditional courts called gachachas.
5: The word itself comes from a type of grass. So if you talk of gachacha tradition, it means people sitting in the open, in the grass, and ironing out. Their problems.
10: In Rwanda, gachachas are used to settle disputes over things like cattle and land. Village elders listen to the parties involved and then decide how best to resolve the matter. The gachacha differs from Western notions of justice because the main objective isn't to find and punish the criminal, but to find the right solution, usually some kind of restitution. If I had
5: a problem at home with my wife, we would never go to court. We would go into our families and sort it out. So that's using the communities to judge their own, at their own
10: standards. Tarsus himself is a relative stranger to the community. He's part of Rwanda's new elite, a generation of Tutsis that grew up in exile and came back after the genocide to good jobs and government posts and the task of rebuilding the nation. At Kasovu Prison, tucked high in the tea plantations south of Kabuye, a prosecutor addresses a crowd of prisoners standing patiently before him in the drumming rain. Each carries a copybook with lined paper, their dossier, with details of the accusations against them. Under the Gachacha Act, passed by the Rwandan legislature, each prisoner will be ranked by the seriousness of his or her crimes. Category 1 is the most serious. It includes organizers of the genocide and rapists. People in categories 2 through 5 are eligible to confess and maybe get their sentences halved. For example, someone sentenced to 10 years would serve 5 years in prison and 5 years making restitution by helping the community. 27-year-old Kalist Gashibarake has already confessed to killing the family of a neighbor and good friend. Kalist's story is a familiar one. He says he killed because he was ordered to.
9: Before the killing started, the army came to our house and told us to kill the Tutsis, and whoever doesn't participate will face a consequence
10: there have been rebellions in some prisons, still dominated by Hutu hardliners, but the number of prisoners coming forward to confess is growing. Judge Tarsis says getting ready for the Gachaches has been complicated because most of the prisoners were never
5: formally charged with a specific crime. Immediately after the war, people were being arrested on pointing fingers. The arresting officers at the time didn't know the legal procedures, recording statements, Uh, writing charges, so this has been a nightmare of work. So the torture process will help us to go backwards. to What happened? How were you arrested? Who accused you? So that the truth comes out. But finding the truth won't be so easy. Across the road from
10: the prison in Kabuye, a group of women sits on a bench outside a shelter for women. They were raped during the genocide and have been abandoned by their families.
5: My name is Catherine Niranzawa Man. My name is Rosaria Niranzawa My name is Mariam Emerita.
10: Their stories illustrate some of the difficulties of the gachacha process.
5: <laughs>
10: <laughs> this woman keeps her face covered with her hands, crying continually.
0: As to why I'm dropping tears, it's because I even don't know the number of people who raped me. After raping me, they
10: even infected me with AIDS. The militia killed her husband, she says, and they kept her for months until they abandoned her in the forests of Zaire. She seems badly traumatized and says she wouldn't recognize the men who abused her. Still, Judge Tarsus is optimistic that the Gachachas will provide enough peer pressure so the truth will come out.
5: In our tradition, it is very rare to tell lies publicly. If you tell a lie to a hundred people seated listening to you, the chances are that one person in the community will clap up and say, stupid, don't tell lies. In Ruhasha, a hamlet in the southern province of Butari, a
10: dozen young couples are gathered for a wedding ceremony. The brides are wearing circlets of white pearls in their hair. The Young men are in their best suits and ties. But before the wedding begins, there's another matter to take care of. A crowd of about 700 people, men, women, children and old folks, sit on the ground, some of them holding striped umbrellas against the midday sun. As the wedding guests stand by, 20 young men in pink uniforms are brought from the local prison. They're here for one of the first trial gachachas. In the center of the crowd, a prosecutor from Kigali stands in white shirt sleeves.
4: The reason we are here is to tell the truth about the prisoners who might have acted in the genocide. If we hear about anybody who threatens a witness, they'll be punished. So even if you're sitting next to someone who participated in the killing, stand up and testify. And if there is someone who is in prison who has done nothing, You should also say that, and we'll let him go home.
10: One by one, the prisoners come forward, and people stand and tell what they saw or heard eight years ago. Stories of murdered children, a young man who killed his teacher. Complicated details are argued back and forth. Some of the witnesses are jeered and laughed at, including a woman everyone says is crazy from grief because of her dead children. Finally, the most dramatic moment of the day. A sobbing woman accuses one of the prisoners of killing her child. But a young man comes forward and says the boy is innocent. He knows because the real killer is his own brother, who is at home. (laughs) Another witness agrees. A policeman is dispatched to arrest the elder brother, and the boy who has been in prison since 1994
8: is freed. Uh, uh, He is released.
10: He rolls on the grass laughing and runs across the field giving high fives to the other prisoners. This afternoon, five of the prisoners are released on the spot. The other 20 are sent back to prison. Some who confessed will be released early. Others will have to stand trial in a regular courtroom and could be executed. As the Gachachas begin in earnest this summer, human rights groups will be watching. One concern is that the prisoners' dossiers are prepared by the government, but there are no defense attorneys. Justice Tarsus says he knows many in the West are disturbed by the lack of due process. The
5: church is a much more perfect system in the sense that its mission is much, much greater than what a trial by jury does. A trial by jury also reconciles the community with the suspect. But here you are talking of large numbers of the population who are traumatized, who are suspected, who are weakened by genocide. So, right now, because of lack of the truth, Everybody is apprehensive. Everybody is suspicious of the other. And a society that lives in suspicion and speculation is not a society that develops.
9: When I come here, I see all these people are my my friends, my relatives.
10: Karasira Venuste, the survivor of the school massacre, stands on the edge of the Field of Crosses. He shakes his head at the talk of reconciliation and compensation.
9: It can't uh, pull up these people, these cops lying here. What price could you give me to to buy my right arm? What price could you give?
10: He says the worst thing would be having to listen to the stories and see the perpetrators.
9: I fear that people will be traumatized, more traumatized than they are now including myself, including myself. Yeah, I I don't want to hear somebody telling me, I took him into the forest, I cut, I killed, I... I don't, I don't wish to hear, to hear those stories,
10: no. Because I, I, I I would run mad even,
9: I would run mad.
10: But however painful, most Rwandans welcome the Kachachas, it seems the only practical solution. A 100,000 judges have been selected from communities around the country. The United States and other nations have pledged financial support. The logistics are daunting. Impassable roads, witnesses who may have to walk for miles, a shortage of pencils to record the verdicts. The Gachachas may not bring perfect justice but at the very least, they may help Rwandans reach a common understanding of just what happened here in 1994. From the villages of Rwanda to Bosnia or Germany, justice, whether in the grass or in a courtroom, is a long and uncertain journey. The United States played a key role in trying to bring justice to each of these conflicts. Indeed, it was an American prosecutor who secured the world's first ever genocide conviction at the Rwanda Tribunal. Today, the United States continues to support war crimes trials for individual countries, but opposes a global war crimes court that could place Americans under its jurisdiction. At his famous opening speech in Nuremberg, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson said that the laws used against Nazi leaders would serve little purpose if they were not applied to all nations. Today, Jackson's vision is still far from becoming a reality.
0: This is Dipper George for American Radio Works. Justice on trial was produced by Michael Montgomery, Deborah George, and Stephen Smith. Coordinating producer Sasha Eslanian. Production manager Misha Quill, editing by Deborah George and Peggy Gershman, and technical support from Craig Thorson. Production assistants, Naomi Lubbock and Dania Akkad. Web production Emily Thompson and Michael Wells. The executive producer is Bill Buzenberg. I'm Deborah Amos. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for Justice on Trial was provided by the Open Society Institute, the Sandler Family Supporting Foundation, and the United States Institute for Peace. For more on the history and the hopes of international justice, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. American Radio Works is the documentary project of Minnesota Public Radio and NPR News. This is NPR National Public Radio.